Good morning again. Good to be sharing God's word with you. And um, we're going to continue this morning with our look at the Olivet Discourse. Chapters 24 and 25 of uh, of the Gospel of uh, Matthew. So if you turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 24, we will look at just uh, a couple of verses this morning and actually not even look at them because these two verses that I will read for you this morning will form the foundation for another passage that we'll be reading, uh, which being somewhere totally different, um, just to give us a bit more of a foundation today. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll read verse 15 and 16 this morning. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now we'll just we'll stop there and we'll open up in a word of prayer and we'll see where the Lord takes this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your blessed word that we can trust. Father, we just uh, place our trust and we stand firmly upon the truth that you've delivered unto us. So we ask this morning that uh, you would be working on our hearts, that our hearts would be totally open to your truth, that we'd be willing not just to take it in, Lord, but to allow it to work in a way that our lives would be changed, that we might glorify you more and more each day. And Father, we just pray this morning that as we leave this place, we will leave uh, more challenged and committed to following you and lifting up the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Where's Kim Jong-un? You know what I'm talking about? Kim Jong-un is missing. He's been missing for five weeks. For those of you who don't don't know who he is, he's the leader of North Korea. He's the leader of of a country that's quite isolated from everyone else. And he has come from a dynasty of, uh, of leaders, a family, that have led that country for a while now. But the question on, in, everyone's, uh, in everyone's mind is, where is he? He's actually miss, been missing for five weeks. Now, what made it more strange okay, is that recently he's missed the, the People's um, uh, Workers' Party, party or, uh, or celebration that normally have every year. That's the one where they actually have... Um, you know, the tanks going down the street, the people marching in, in duck step uh, fashion and, and, you know, planes flying overhead, missiles being, you know, uh, exhibited. He missed, was missing from that. So they've, 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 everyone's been speculating as to what's happened with him. Some people have been saying he's been overthrown in the background. Some people are saying he's got some sort of a serious illness and he, that he hasn't been uh, uh, coming out and he hasn't been able to, uh, to do anything. Um, and the speculations are running wild at the moment. King Jong-un is the supreme leader of what's called the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. One thing I learned a while ago is that where a country has in its name democratic and republic, you can be guaranteed of two very important things. It is neither democratic neither a republic. So most countries that have the name the People's Republic of or the People's Democratic Republic of, be guaranteed, it's neither of those two. There is something else going on. The problem with this specific, this specific individual is that he is responsible for and oversees a country which has a decent nuclear arms uh, portfolio. And they're concerned about who's running the country at the moment. Because if he's he's been overthrown, the question is, who's running the place? And if he's he's not running the place, and mind you, he's bad enough running it. But if he's not running it, who is? That's the the next question. That's a a concern. And this country, um, the interesting thing about it, and I think which I want, want to point out this morning, is that the country is intricately linked with the actual leader. It's hard to separate the leader from the country because the leader embodies what the, country, the direction the country is going and the, the, the whole philosophy of the country. If you, take, you can't take away the leader without affecting the country or vice, or vice versa. 
But that's been the case for most of mankind's history. The leader epitomises the, the type of country it is. The leader actually sets the mood for the country. They are the ones who, who set the agenda, who say what's important. And what I want to, one, one of the important points I want us to understand this morning is that, see this, this thing we call democracy, where we have leaders and we, we vote them in, we turf them out, we vote them in, we turf them out, and we just switch, switch a route, you know, every, every few years. It's a very recent occurrence. In fact, if you look at most of the countries in the world, they don't necessarily have that style. So if you look at what happened in the Middle East, you know, they had the toppling of all those different, uh, those different um, leaders over there. You had, a, you had Assad. Well, they're trying to topple Assad at the moment. But there generally have been a dynasty of leaders that have passed their, their leadership down from father to son to son to son, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, Mubarak was that way in Egypt. If you look at many of the African nations, they're not necessarily what you call democratic or properly democratic, uh, in that one family takes the, the leadership and it's very hard. They become entrenched. It's, it's hard to get them out. Okay? So this is what's happened in this particular country. But this is what it was like going back. Okay? So when you talk of, in biblical days, if we talk about um, how it was in, in um, uh, Babylon... We're going to be looking at the, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. Those were not democracies that changed their leaders every, every few years. They were, um, they were countries or nations, they were kingdoms that were led by people who then passed their leadership down to their children and their children's children. And what you find today is a little bit of an aberration. It's not, it hasn't been the common thing that has happened over the, over the, uh, the centuries and millennia. Kim Jong-un is in fact the son of King, Kim Jong-il, who lost control of the country when he died. And he was a son, the son of Kim Il-sung. So there's been, there's been a progression of these, of these fellows. And I'm not here today to, to criticise what they do, how they do it, what I'd like us to take away from, from this uh, the, uh, message today is that the kingdom or the nation is often linked through history with the leader. And they're often inextricably linked. You can't separate them. So I've often heard it said that a pastor of a church sets the mood of the church. I actually believe that's, that's pretty real. The pastor of a church, the way the pastor um, uh, behaves, the way the, the things that he dictates in a sense, the things that he puts in, into place, set the mood of the church. And the people tend to follow and become like that. They tend to look at the pastor and they say, the pastor's doing that, so I want to do the same. They look, at, they look at the leaders, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a society, and people tend to imitate those, those leaders, especially in these, these countries that are either dictatorships or kings or empires. Now, in these verses we've just read this morning, where it says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, I've spoken about, about where this, who this, this passage is referring to. And this passage is generally referring to the Jews that will be living during the tribulation period. That's why it says, let them which be in Judea, flee to the mountains. Because the whole focus of the Olivet Discourse is to the Jews and focused in Israel. This is what will happen at the end of the age. Now, the Lord makes reference to something very interesting here. He calls it, when you see the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation? And it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and it's going to be standing in the holy place. In order for us to, to properly understand what the Lord is talking about here, it will probably do us well to go back to Daniel the prophet, who the Lord is referring to, and look at some of the things that Daniel actually spoke about and some of the prophecies that lay a foundation, that actually, that actually are referred to by the Lord himself, by John the Apostle, by the Apostle Paul, by a number of others who referred back to Daniel as a foundation of, um, of what will happen in the last or latter days. Um, the book of Daniel is, is, is 
very rich. For those of you who haven't read it recently, who don't know much about it, very rich in prophecy. It, it, it contains, the majority of it is prophecy. It's about um, the angel Gabriel who comes and speaks to uh, Daniel and lets him know what's going to happen in the final days. But in this prophecy we're looking at today, something different happens. Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Old Testament? number of men wrote the, wrote the Old Testament. What nationality were they? They were Jewish. They were generally Jewish. In this passage we'll be looking at today, the funny thing is that the, the person who came up with this specific um, interpretation or dream was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And he was a Gentile king. And God gave this Gentile king, or this emperor, really, it's probably a better definition of him, um, a specific dream and a prophecy about what would occur all the way down from history, starting from his kingdom all the way down to the end of the world. And Daniel happened to be at the right place at the right time, and God gave him the ability to be able to know that dream and to interpret that dream for his king, who was living um, with at the moment at that time. So what we're going to do is... Look at the book of Daniel this morning, or a specific passage in Daniel. So turn back with me there. As we lay a foundation upon which the Lord referred and also the Apostle John referred in the book of Revelation. So we want to lay some background this morning to what we understand will come in the last days and who the Antichrist will be, how he fits into the whole thing, who the false prophet will be what this abomination of desolation is that they're speaking about and how it affects the world. And as we lay this foundation, you'll have a, a much better understanding of when you read the book of Revelation and you read the Olivet Discourse, how the whole thing fits together. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. As we look at a dream, you've done the book of Daniel, haven't you? You're doing it now? Oh, good. Hopefully, I'll, I'll give you all the answers. It'll make your job easier. Okay. Okay, Daniel chapter 2. And we'll look at, just we'll read, just read verses 1 and 2 to begin with. And before we, um, before we uh, get read, begin to read this, understand that the name Nebuchadnezzar is the name of the king. Um, and he was the king of Babylon. And Daniel, who was a Jew, was living in Babylon at that time. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why he was there a little bit later on. So Daniel chapter 2 verse 1 says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Okay, that's fair enough. That's a very simple sort of thing. The most powerful man in the world at that time, the world's emperor, had a dream. And he dreamed a uh, dream that he couldn't remember. Have you had that situation happen? You know, you've had a dream or you've woken up in a, in a sweat or something, something's going on. You think, what was that dream that I dreamed? And you can't, you can't quite remember what it was. And Nebuchadnezzar was in this specific state. It says that he was troubled, he was shaken by that dream. So it must have been a, probably, probably more of a nightmare for him than an actual dream because it says that he was shaken by the dream. He probably woke up very anxious, but then in all the, the anxiety that he had, he couldn't remember what the actual dream was. That would be really frustrating. But you know what? When you're an emperor, you can, you can let out your frustrations on other people. So what he does, he calls all his, it says he calls his magicians, his astrologers, his sorcerers and Chaldeans to come and tell him the dream. Okay, It must have been pretty important to him. Now it's interesting to note, just as a side note now, most of these types of people are still floating around today. This is, this is thousands of years ago. And these people, these astrologers and magicians and sorcerers, are still floating around today. There are still a number of people who, who 
delve into what we call the occult or, or, or arts or, or black arts um, to get information about their future and other people's futures. I mean, people flock, still flock to astrologers. There are still astrology tables written in, in most magazines these days. People still go to, to consult people who consult other dead people. And people look in crystal balls and tell people their future. They go to wise men who apparently know, know all things and know uh, uh, secret sort of information and secret, um, uh, secret uh, truths, apparently. They're able to interpret future signs or interpret tea leaves sitting at the bottom of cups and, and all that sort of stuff. And just, I actually did a, did a bit of a search on, on how many of these things are still floating around today. And they're actually a lot more than what, what Nebuchadnezzar had in these days because you, today you can go to, uh, you can have, you go to seances, you can see mediums, you can go to fortune-telling, palm-reading, crystal balls, tarot cards, necromancy, it's consulting the dead, spirit guides, automatic writing, divining, water, water witching, ESP, psychokinesis, tele, telepathy, palm reading, tea leaves, clairvoyancy, uh, second sight, hypnosis, reading auras, metaphysics, self-realisation, visions, trances, witchcraft, black magic, white magic, charms, good luck items, handwriting analysis, Ouija boards, evil eyes, omens, amulets, talismans, uh, birth signs, birth stones, spells, incantations, Kabbalah, horoscopes, phrenology, numerology, spiritism, pendulum, reading a pendulum, um, trance diagnosis, pen you got the idea. <laughs> There are a plethora of satanic places and arts that you can consult and go to to find out, apparently, stuff that you're not meant to know. And somehow these people are meant to find out this information. Um, but let's have a look at verse 10. Go to the verse 10 of Daniel and let's see, let's see what the king, the greatest man in the world at that stage, after he called these magicians and astrologers and all these types of people... Let's see what luck he had in getting the information that he wanted. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered before the king. These were the wise, the wise men. These were the wise guys, right? They answered for everyone else. Before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked, asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Wouldn't you like that answer from as you're the king? You know what he's basically saying? Uh, no one's ever asked that sort of question before. For a person to be able to know someone else's dream, and they'll basically tell him the king, this is a very dangerous thing, you're being unreasonable. That's basically what they were saying. You're being unreasonable. No one's ever asked this sort of question before. It's unreasonable for you to ask us, the magicians, the astrologers, and all, the, all these wise people you've got before you, to be able to know what dream you had and what, and what, the, um, and what, what it means. So, these prophets, diviners, astrologers, who are meant to be able to read the future, mind you, Right, So put them all together. They're meant to be able to read the future. Not only didn't know what the king's dream was, but didn't see this whole thing coming themselves. He said because if, if they had any idea of the future and what was, what was coming to them, do you think they would have even been around? Because if they had known that this king was going to come to them and ask them this specific question and that they didn't have the answer, look at verse 12 what it says. For this cause, the king was, was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Do you think if they'd really known anything about the future, they would have even been there? They wouldn't have been. When you are called to answer the king, a king with absolute power, the power over life and death, and he can make any decision he likes and it has to be followed, you'd better be not telling him that he's being unreasonable. That's the last thing I'd be telling him. Because it may just happen that he gets angry 
and he says, off with all of your heads at the same time. So and that's exactly what happened. The king got so angry that none of the people, all these astrologers and diviners and, and wise people and all this sort of stuff, not one of them could tell him what the dream was. So he got even more frustrated. And the response was, kill them all. With all their knowledge of the future, you would have thought they would have seen it coming. Their heads were on the chopping block. But no, all these apparent special people were absolutely useless to the king and useless to themselves and are useless today. Absolutely useless today. Though these people and who, who do the same thing today that they were doing then play on the fringes of hell. They play, they, they, they play a dance on, the, on, the, on the, the precipice of hell. They can't predict anyone's future. And you know why they can't predict anyone's future? Because the devil does not know the future. The devil doesn't know the future. There's only one who knows the future, and that's God. The devil, try, the devil knows signs, or he knows the, the, the apparent sort of movements of things, just like us. You look at the stock market and you tell whether it's going to go up or going to go down. You're going to get it wrong half the time and get it right half the time. But you can generally tell the way things are moving and the devil knows that sort of information. But the devil does not know the future. Actually, we had an interesting discussion on Wednesday night because we talked about the Antichrist. And it's interesting that a number of individuals over the, over the years have almost fit what the Antichrist was meant to be. You look at people like Napoleon, and you look at people like Hitler, and it's almost like the, the, the devil's had a practice run a few times at this thing. But then it dawned, it dawned on us, in a sense, that the devil doesn't know the future. So the devil always has to be almost ready for when God says, now is the time. And the devil has to always try to be ready, playing this game, manoeuvring, always trying to have someone ready to go. So even now, I'm assuming the devil is trying to prepare someone just in case the rapture occurs. And he's stuck in a situation where he has to make a move pretty quickly. And I think that's what's happened. The devil does not know the future. I noted a long time ago that if these people, these astrologers and people who read tarot cards and all these things, if they really knew the future, they would all be millionaires and they wouldn't need your money. Ever figured that? They'd all be millionaires. Because if they really could read the future, they'd know what the tax lotto numbers were or they'd win a bingo or the horses or the cars or whatever. I mean, they're not adverse to, to gambling. If you, knew the, if you knew which horse was going to win every time or you knew the tax lotto numbers that were coming out because you, could, you knew the future, hey, that's not even gambling anymore. They'd all be millionaires. But guess what? They charge you money to tell you your lucky numbers. Something a bit wrong with that, isn't it? They're all trying to eke out a living, making money off other susceptible people. And that's the way this, this thing goes around and around. It's been going around for millennia now. They don't know the future. They guess the future. They may get it right part of the time, and people just continually get drawn in and drawn into this rubbish. But I want to warn each of you not to get involved with any occult practice. It's actually not a fun thing. It's not just fun. If it's, if it's occultic, you're opening up yourself to demonic influence. So not only are you opening up yourself to psychological damage, but you're opening up yourself to demonic oppression and, at worst, possession. Okay, people who play around with things like Ouija boards and those sorts of things open up themselves to demonic possession. And when you have a demon inside you, you are going to have a very hard time of it. Okay? Demonic oppression, which is where the demon continues to, and maybe he's infested um, you or, or is working upon you, is still not a very nice place to be. So I want to warn every, every one of you, Get away, keep away from any occultic practice. And if you're not sure whether it's occultic or not, 
God's word says a lot about divination and consulting the dead, reading cards and leaves and anything where you think that you can read the future with some sort of uh, mystical thing, keep away from it. Keep away from people who sell you that information because more than likely they're either possessed or they're being, or they're being influenced by some demonic activity. Okay? So let's go back. Let's go back to a bit of a, a background of why Daniel was in Babylon. Daniel had been taken captive at a very young age along with a number of the aristocracy in Israel okay, by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Israel had tried to form some sort of an alliance with Egypt and they tried to resist um, uh, Babylon and Babylon was just way too big of an empire. God had already said this is what's going to happen anyway so don't resist them. But Israel, as it, as it normally does, doesn't do the right thing and they were taken, they were taken captive. Um, I won't get you to turn to Ezra, but Ezra chapter 5 verse 12 says, But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven unto wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. Okay, So God had, had, had allowed this thing to happen. Nebuchadnezzar was the emperor of Babylon. Okay, he was the most powerful man in the world. He lived around 600 BC. And Daniel was brought over from Israel at a young age and actually trained in his schools. Though he was, and, his, and his, uh, his friends, were basically made to be counsellors and wise men in this king's, in this emperor's uh, kingdom. Um, they were trained at a, from a very young age in the Babylonian schools, and Daniel was considered one of the smartest guys in the whole in the whole kingdom or the whole empire. And you look at this and go to go back to Daniel chapter one verse six. Yep, chapter one verse six. And there are four specific individuals that are mentioned altogether, of whom Daniel was a, a part of. It says in verse verse six. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Okay? So, and then look at verse, this in verse 7. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshech, and to Azariah Abednego. So what happened was they brought these, these four guys over, along with a number of other ones, but these play a specific part. And so these, these ones are, are commonly mentioned in the book of Daniel. Okay? Um, you've probably heard about the one where they're thrown into the, into the fiery furnace. Okay? And that, that's, the, uh, that's Daniel's friends over here that are thrown in there, where Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. There's a number of stories about what happened to them during their time under, under the Babylonian uh, Empire. But they gave them other names. So you'll notice that they came in with their, with their Jewish names and the Babylonians gave them other names, gave them different names as well. So these, these four especially became highly educated, very smart, very smart guys. Um, and they were regarded um, very highly in the kingdom as well. Um, now, the interesting thing is that when the, the emperor decided to, to kill all these Chaldeans and astrologers, and he actually the the decree that he made was to kill all the wise men. He said, "Kill all the wise men." You know why? Because the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the sorcerers were all considered in the same class, wise men. So, whether you were wise, whether you're a sorcerer, whether you're a magician, you were considered in a, in the upper class, the upper echelon of special knowledge of being very smart. So the king got so angry over here. He said, kill them all, all the wise men. Well, guess where Daniel was? Daniel was a wise man as well. So the news came to Daniel. And they said, Daniel, you're about to be knocked off by the king. Daniel goes, well, what's, what's, what's going on? And they said to him, what happened? They explained to him what happened. So Daniel then says, can I have a special audience with the king? So he presents himself before the king, and the king allows him to come before him. And Daniel goes, well, what's wrong? And the king explained, and Daniel, and, and Daniel said, can I have just some time before you, before you kill us? And so the king grants Daniel the special time. 
And Daniel then goes and spends time with his friends. See, these friends over here. And they spend the night in prayer. And overnight, Daniel receives the answer to the prayer. And he gets the, and God tells him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and the meaning of the actual dream. So he spends that night with his friends, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and God gives him the answer. So the next day he's, he's brought before the king. Look at verse 26 of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, 26, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that reveals secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Verse 30. But as for me... This secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any, any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation of the king and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Daniel is amazing in that he readily admits that he's, it's not, nothing special about him. He could have gone to the king and said, King, I know it all. But he didn't. He goes, there's nothing special in me. That, that, that allows me to, to give you this specific answer. But he says there is a God in heaven who knows all the secret things. He knows everything that's going on. Every man's dream, thoughts, visions or whatever. And this is the God who will give you the answer. What a witness before a pagan king. This king believed in other, other gods and probably a plethora of gods. And he's Daniel. While, while these magicians and astrologers and soothsayers and all these other guys couldn't tell him the answer, referring to their gods, Daniel comes along and says, there is one God who knows the answer. And he's the God who knows all the dreams and visions. He knows everything that goes on in everyone's head. He knows everything that will come to pass in the future. And this is the God that I'm going to tell you about. And this is the God who's going to tell you your dream that you had on your bed. What Daniel then proceeds to tell <coughs> King Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream about what would happen right to the end of the world. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a, was a vision or a prophecy about what would happen from his kingdom all the way to the end when the, when the end of the world will occur. Now, we're not going to get a chance to do all that today. We're just going to see just a, just a few little things today. But follow with me as we read 31. Because Daniel then proceeds to tell the king his dream. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold. His breast and arms were of silver. His belly and his thighs of brass. His legs of iron his feet of part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel just finished telling the king his dream and doesn't hold back on any specific detail. He knows all the details of this dream. Can you imagine the king looking at Daniel? You've got this guy telling him, he wasn't there with him, and he's telling him the exact dream that he has. Can you see at the end of this passage, the king goes, the king's response was actually fell down before Daniel, started to worship him. 
That's how amazed he actually was with Daniel's ability to be able to tell him the dream. But then, Daniel doesn't just tell him the dream. He's told him the dream. So what he's told him is basically this. King, what you dreamed of was this incredible statue. And this statue had a head of gold. He had a chest of silver and the arms of silver. All right, so imagine this in your mind. He had a, a waist basically made of brass, legs of iron, and the feet were iron mixed with clay. Okay? So that's, that's the image that the king saw. Now, Daniel proceeds to tell the king the interpretation, what this whole thing actually means. Look at verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. All right, so you're the head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And that's all we're going to get through today, because it's just going to be way too long for me to go through this whole, this whole thing. So let's just stop there for a moment, and let's begin to look at these three sections. The head of gold, the chest of silver, and then this, this uh, waste of brass, and see what they're about. The head of gold, Daniel specifically says, is you, king. You're that head of gold. You're the head of gold. You must have been pretty wrapped being the head of gold. Must have thought quite highly of himself, but Babylon had accumulated huge, huge amounts of gold uh, in its time. Okay, it was a very, very wealthy uh, nation. And Daniel says that King, you're that head of gold. Now, remember, I said to you. Remember, I opened up with the thought that kingdoms are inextricably linked with the kings. Okay. So when Daniel says that it's king, you're that head, what he's basically saying is that Babylon is also that head. So there's a kingdom associated with the head. There'll be another kingdom and a king associated with the, with the chest, another king and a kingdom associated with the waist. So there's, they're, they're linked together. Now, where am I at? Okay. The king of Babylon was the head, and the head was the Babylonian Empire itself. True kingdoms, like we've seen with um, whether it's the Assad dynasty or whether it's whatever, become what are called dynasties. True kingdoms become dynasties. They just pass it down to their children, one after the other. So the same spirit continues down that line. And the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Now, we won't talk too much about that, but the next kingdom, which, which uh, Daniel says comes after the head of gold, he says is inferior. Well, it's inferior from the point of view that it's silver compared to gold. Gold is, is always more precious than silver, and that, that was the, uh, the symbolism over there. And it's represented by the chest and the two arms, and it's significant. Because the next empire to overtake the Babylonian Empire, because the Babylonian Empire fell, okay? didn't last too long, but it was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. Okay? Um, and that, the Medo-Persian Empire, is what we commonly call today Iran. It's the Iranian people. I, I still call themselves Persian. Okay? Um, do you know where the, where the Babylonian Empire was? Iraq. Yeah, so modern-day modern day Iraq is where the Babylonian Empire was, uh, was started. The Iranians came along second, the Persians, and, and, took, and took that over as well. So actually, the Chaldeans, okay, and, and some of you know probably Chaldeans, um, because um, King Nebuchadnezzar was called a Chaldean, are still around today, mind you. They're still around. There are actually there are a number of Chaldeans living in Melbourne. I know a number of Chaldeans personally, which is interesting when you think about it, because they're the people who lived in the Babylonian Empire, but there are still Persians living today, 
and they lived in, in this specific time too. So the amazing thing is, what I've found interesting is that a lot of these, a lot of these people still exist today. Though the empires don't exist anymore and the, the names and the places have changed, they still exist and, if, and they, they still carry that identity after thousands of years, which, is, which I find amazing. And a lot of them regard themselves as Christians. A lot of these, these nations, not these nations, I'll call them people, regard themselves as Christians, which I find interesting as well. Anyway, let's, let's continue. The one who took over the, the who, who um, overtook the Babylonian Empire was called Cyrus. Okay, you probably heard of Cyrus's name in the actual Bible. But Cyrus overtook the Babylonian Empire by damming up the River Euphrates. The River Euphrates went through uh, the city of Babylon, and what they did is they, they dammed it up, and because they couldn't get this thing had walls so thick around, you couldn't lay a siege to it. It wasn't it was impossible to lay a siege to. So what they did, they did something really smart. When um, uh, Cyrus went to attack uh, Babylon, the city of Babylon, they realised that the actual the, the, the river went through, so they dammed it and they went under the wall. So instead of where the water was, they dried up the water and they went very quietly under the wall at night and they defeated it that way. You've heard of the story, and I can't go into all the detail, but there was a story that, about a particular king in Babylon called Belshazzar. Belshazzar was having a party with some of his friends while this thing was going on. Probably pretty, pretty uh, comforted by the fact that there's a huge wall around them and no one could break through, so he decides to have a party with a thousand of his highest officials. While that happened, do you remember the story in the Bible that says that he sees a handwriting on the wall? Huh? And then they call in Daniel again. And they go, Daniel, what's, what's the meaning of this? And Daniel says, well, you know, you've been found, you know, God has, has weighed you in the balances, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom will be taken away from you. That's the meaning of those words that have been written there. And that night, Cyrus marched in and took over the whole kingdom. And that's recorded in the book of Daniel as well. Um, it's interesting. What, what's, if, you look at, if you look at some of the things, it's, it's amazing the way the Bible actually um, records details of prophecy about these things, actually foretold this thing was going to happen. Um, Isaiah described the, the, the downfall of Babylon before it happened. Okay? About 100, I think it was about 150 years before. And, and he even named in his prophecy the king who would overtake it before he was born. So the prophet Isaiah in the Bible names Cyrus. He actually gives you the name Cyrus. That God says to him, Cyrus will be my servant. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45 with me. We'll just look at that briefly because it's absolutely incredible. Now, before, before we read anything, I just want to just share with you a couple of other things because so we don't have time to read all of them. But Isaiah described, the prophet Isaiah described how God would destroy the kingdom of Babylon in a number of places in his writings. Okay? So he knew that, that Babylon was the world power, but he predicted that 150 years before that Persia would overtake Babylon. Okay? He prophesied that Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians. And he, he mentions that in Isaiah chapter 13 and, and chapter 21. He then prophesied that the golden city of Babylon would be conquered by a man named Cyrus in chapters 44 and 45. And what's absolutely incredible is that Cyrus hadn't been born and wouldn't be born for another 150 years. So God's, God's able to determine even the name of the person that, would, that would, uh, would be involved in that thing. And look what it says here in this prophecy. This is a prophecy before it actually happened. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in, uh, cut in sunder the bars of iron, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden uh, riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, 
which called thee by, by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now, so God is making a, a, a prophecy. God is telling the prophet Isaiah, who's a Jew, a prophecy about a, a Gentile king named Cyrus. And he says, I'm going to use Cyrus to subdue kings, and I'm going to open the doors for him. Notice how it says in verse, in verse 1, it says, to open before him the two-leafed gates. Right? Are there big doors in the, in the city? No, they, they, they like that, those, those doors. Okay. The two-leaf gates. Take special note of that. Because what happened when Cyrus overtook that city is that they had left open these two big doors. The two doors of the city. So he didn't just walk under the wall. He just found the whole, the whole thing open to him. Just the way Isaiah had predicted more than 150 years before. And we know that because in 1879, British archaeologists found a tube, a cylinder made of, made of clay called the Cyrus Cylinder. And the Cyrus Cylinder recorded how King Cyrus actually overtook the Babylonian Empire. Explains it. And actually mentions in that how he dried up the river Euphrates and marched under the walls, and how these, this, this thing was just left open for him. So God predicted that, I'm going to leave those doors wide open for you. I'm going to make sure. So whoever was in charge of locking those doors, God made it sure that they forgot that something else had happened. So God's word is unbelievably precise when it comes to when it predicts the future, because God knows the future from the beginning. Now, in more recent times, the, the, the ancient city of Babylon, which is located about 85 kilometres south of Baghdad. So you know where Baghdad is, where that, the war happened, OK? Um, it's located 85 kilometres south of that. Now, before Saddam Hussein fell, Saddam Hussein, one of his dreams was to rebuild that city. And so he, he, he'd make um, uh, billboards and posters of himself along with a picture of Guess who? Nebuchadnezzar. Because he saw himself as a modern-day King Nebuchadnezzar and he wanted to rebuild the city of Babylon with all its hanging gardens and everything like that. And he, was, he probably would have by now done it. But history didn't allow him to do it. Or was it history that didn't allow him to do it? Because, turn to Jeremiah chapter 51 with me. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 64, says this. Look at this prophecy that was made by the prophet Jeremiah. And it says, And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. Babylon would never rise again. And does it matter what men's plans are to resurrect Babylon? or to rebuild Babylon, or to try and start the empire all over again, it would never work. God said in his word, that city is never going to be rebuilt, and it never will. Actually, it's a place of, ding, of, of, of wolves and, uh, and birds at the moment. It's just a, an empty city. It's been left there. No one, no one lives there. No one does anything there. So when God <coughs> decides to do something, you better make sure that your plans are aligned with his because if your plans aren't aligned with God's, your plans are not going to succeed. Saddam might have thought of rebuilding the Babylonian Empire and rebuilding the city. But God's plans are otherwise, and God will make sure that his plans are always fulfilled. Babylon has been destroyed for thousands of years and has never been rebuilt. And God's word is always going to be true. So let's look at the third kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, it says, And after thee shall arise another kingdom, inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Okay, so we had the Babylonians being taken over by the Persians, or the Medo-Persians. 
The Medo-Persians were taken over by the... The Greeks. Okay, the Greeks. Do you remember a fellow called Alexander? Okay, he was called great because of what he did. And he conquered the known world that time. He overtook the Persians and he conquered most of the world. And it mentions... Actually, I've got a number of Greek friends who are very proud of their, uh, of their Greek heritage. I don't know if you know, you know many Greeks, but Greeks tend to be very proud of their, you know what I mean, of their, of their history and their, uh, and, their, uh, and their wars and how they resisted the Persians. And there's a film called, there's an old film called Three, The 300 Spartans who were able to hold off, you know, a million, <laughs> a million or a hundred thousand or whatever they were, uh, Persians who were coming in and Xerxes was coming in. He wanted to, to, to destroy Greece and take over the whole thing and, and they resisted and they got all these the battles of Thermopylae and battles of this and battles of that and they, and they have their, their heroes and they are, they're, they're quite proud of their history. And the Greeks... Um, we need to be thankful for the Greeks too because your New Testaments are written in Greek for a reason. And the fact that Alexander the Great conquered the whole world, spread the Greek culture all over the place. In fact, by the time the Romans were looking after you know, Jerusalem, you know, the Romans in Jesus' day were, the Romans were the ones who were in power over there. Well, guess what the common language was? It wasn't Roman. It was Greek. And it was Greek. Because Alexander the Great had spread the Greek culture and language all over the place. By the time he was 33, Alexander the Great, by 33, mind you, he became king at about 19. By the age of 33, he conquered the whole world. He, went into in, he was marching into India. He'd conquered Persia. He went into Egypt and conquered Egypt with, a, with an army. He just kept, just kept mowing them down, one after the other. And... When he died at age 33, his kingdom was then split amongst his generals and, and the, the kingdom was split. That's why you have different things happening. Um, well, Israel became sort of... It, it became governed by different kings after that. But the Greek culture, the Greek thinking, the way, the great Greek, the way Greeks think, their, their philosophy, their, their thing, was spread throughout the whole world. So a lot of the, way, the ways we think today, the language we have, has been heavily influenced by the Greeks. Okay? Now, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8, verse 3. Because, keep in mind, the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. It tells you a lot about what will happen later on. And Daniel chapter 8 verse 3 gives you a lot more detail. You know how, you know how we've talked about this, this, this head of gold, which is Babylon, the chest of silver, which is Medo-Persia, and the, the waist of brass, which is uh, the Greeks, now coming into play, becoming the next world dominant power. Well, Daniel chapter 8 gives us more information about what will happen with that. And it says there in verse 3, this is Daniel, and I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great." All right, just, just stop there for a moment. That ram is Persia, is Medo-Persia. It's got two horns, Medo-Persia. Very simple. And he conquered the world. Okay? They did what they liked. They, after they took over from Babylon, they did what they liked. They conquered the known world at that stage. But then look what it says in verse 5. As I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. 
But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and, f- and for it came up four notable ones toward the four wings of heaven. Now, what an amazing prophecy about, about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered an area right, which was the whole, almost the whole of the entire world in a few years. And now it mentions there that the, the, the goat was running, but his feet weren't touching the ground. Well, that's pretty much what happened. The guy's feet weren't touching the ground before he went from one conquest to another, to another, to another. By age 33, the guy had conquered most of the known world. And look what it says. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander died at a very, very young age. And his kingdom was split amongst his generals. And so you have then, straight after him, you have the Greek Empire lasting, I think, another 160 years before the Romans came along and ruined it for them. But they, they, that kingdom was split amongst his generals and then sort of wavered for about 160 years. Um, it's amazing the way God's word is able to predict these things hundreds of years before they even happened. That's, a, that's why you can trust God's word. But if it's able to predict to that accuracy exactly what would happen before then, God's word is still trust. You can still trust it today. It can tell you exactly what you need to know for your life, and it will tell us exactly what will come in the future. And that's why we're looking at um, the Olivet Discourse at the moment, where the Lord's talking about the end of the world. So Greece ruled the world for about 160 years. Greek culture, Greek ideas, Greek thinking spread throughout the whole world. The Greek language became the universal language. Everyone used it. It's a bit like English today. You know how English is generally called the common language of the world? The people, doesn't matter what your language is, they, they tend to learn English as a, as a fallback position so everyone can, can communicate. Well, Greek was the common language of that day. If you were Roman, you spoke Latin, but they also knew Greek. The Jews had their language, but they also wrote and spoke in Greek. That's why... All the New Testament's written in Greek because when they wrote it in Greek, everyone understood it. It was meant to be written for as wide an audience as possible. Now, the Greek culture was so pervasive by that time. They had been in power for about 160 years and Israel had been under, under the, 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 the dominance of Greek, the Greek uh, generals, Ptolemy, the Seleucids. You probably you might have heard or, you, or maybe haven't. No time to get into that now. But they became influenced by the Greeks. And within Israel itself, there was a struggle between being too Greek and trying to retain their Jewish, their Jewish uh, ethnicity. And actually, if you look at it, you know how in the New Testament, Paul gives examples of, you know, when, when we're running a race and when, and when we're, we're doing the Olympics, he actually used Greek examples of the Olympics and Greek culture to talk about what we are, what our lives are as Christians as well. So, we have the head of gold, the chest of silver, the Medo-Persians, and the waist of brass, which is Greece. And I'm not going to talk about the legs now of iron or the, or the, or the feet because we don't have any time. But I want to emphasise one important thing. That the king, and I said to you from the beginning, the king represents the kingdom And the kingdom is embodied in the king. The king is the example of the kingdom. He is the number one citizen. He embodies what the kingdom is all about. That's why when one king was defeated in the Old Testament or even in in, uh, in more recent times, the victorious king would put his foot, he'd he'd make the other king go down on the ground and he'd put his foot on his neck, on the king's neck. That was symbolic that he not only just defeated a guy, but the whole kingdom had been subdued by him. It was symbolic for that very reason. Um, When you play chess, what's the one piece you have to protect? Yeah, and if you lose your king, you've lost it, you've lost the game. It's the same thing here. When you'd lost the king, you'd lost the, the actual empire. So the king is not only a, 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 
It's not only just a person, but a persona that embodies the kingdom. But let me show you something else. Not just a king. There are other, there are other, there's another individual the Bible talks about that plays a part in the background that you don't see. So where the king embodies the kingdom, there is another, there's another being in the background that's embodied. Just turn with me to Daniel chapter 10 for a moment. Sorry, I'm going, I'm going well over time, but I've just got to finish this off. Daniel chapter 10, verse 11. And it says, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. When he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. The, uh, the angel Gabriel had been sent by God to speak to Daniel the prophet to give him this information. But, he says that he'd been withstood by the prince of Persia for 21 days and he couldn't actually get through. And Michael, the archangel, came and helped him to break through so he could get this message to Daniel. Now, who's going to be resisting an angel of God? Is, is a man going to be resisting an angel of God? No. The prince of Persia is not a man. It was not a, not a, not a son of a king. He was an angelic being. And the angel, that angelic being was a driving force from the demonic realm to influence Persia. Okay, um, turn to chat, turn forward to verse nineteen, and we'll close up with this in a minute. And said, "O man greatly beloved, fear not; peace be unto you. Be strong; yea, be strong." And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened, and said, "Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me." Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I, came, I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. Now, the angel Gabriel then told, so he told Daniel that it took him 21 days to break through Demonic, the demonic realm or the prince of Persia that was resisting him from getting through. Michael, he says, your prince. Okay, so a prince is designated as an angel. And Michael is designated as the angel of the Jewish people. He fights, and you will look at this in a, in a later date, he fights for the Jewish people in the end. He rises up and does that. But the angel Gabriel says that he resisted, he was resisted for 21 days, and he goes, after he spoke with Daniel, he was going to go back and fight with the prince of Persia. And he knew that when he'd finished with the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece would come and the new empire would rise. What does that tell you about, what does that tell you about the angelic world and our, the empires of this world? Is that they're inextricably linked. Just like the kings of this world are linked with their kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world somehow are linked with the demonic realm. They, if there's one thing you can be sure of, the devil has been trying to, from the beginning, set up a kingdom here on earth where he is the God of this world and he's set up as that. And this is what this whole thing is culminating to. When we look at things and we read about the Antichrist, we read about all these things that are going to come in the final days, that's simply the culmination of the devil trying to sit on a throne. He tried to sit on a throne in heaven and he failed. And he wants to sit on a throne on the earth and rule over this whole world. And he's fighting in the background to do it. And God is resisting in the background. And in the end, there's going to be one almighty war that happens. And we know he will, that the Satan will lose. So, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Who do you serve today? Because 
in this world, there are demonic, there are demonic um, entities that are enthroned in people's hearts and enthroned in the world, and they follow that entity. That entity rules and shifts and moves and does things in people's lives, and it causes them to go in a particular direction. The ones who resist, the ones who don't go with that flow, are the ones who follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour and have been released from that bondage. Today, if you don't know Christ, you are under the dominion of demonic beings. You are under the dominion of the world's system and the prince of the power of the air who is the devil. But this morning, you can be freed from that. This morning, you can be freed to follow Christ as Lord and Saviour and be freed from that dominion in your life. If you don't know Christ this morning, he wants you to know him. He gave his life for you and he will change your life forever. There is no better king, no better ruler to serve under than him. So this morning I want to encourage you, if you don't know him, to get to know him. And if you don't serve now, understand that there is a war raging around us that we, don't, we can't see. But God sees. So follow what he tells you to do. Because if we don't do what he, what he tells us to do in, in his word which is our manual for survival in this place and our, our battle uh, plan, then we will fall. You will find yourself a... What's the word? When you fall in war? A victim of war? A... Let's remember that. A casualty of war. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you.